You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Last week, we started a new series. We talked about Be the Church. And we talked, we opened up, and Clint, you know, in his opening illustration, used uh, the, the idea that words matter and that sometimes, you know, we sing things, even songs, that we think the lyrics are one way and then they really are this way. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie, I'm not gonna hide it. I didn't know any of the songs he talked about. I mean, one was a country song, which is borderline music in the first place. And then, you know, the other one, I didn't even know what it was. So um, now, if you would have said like the B-52s, right? This is my generation. There's a song called Love Shack from the 80s. Remember, Love Shack. And then there's that one line that no one knows what the girl says. She just kind of like, you know, it's like, you're like, what does she say? You like make stuff up, right? Apparently, she says, tin roof rusted. Don't know what that means? There you go. If you get nothing else out of today, that's what she says. Or my, my kind of misheard lyric from the 80s is a, a song by a band named Mr. Mister uh, called Kyrie Eleison, which growing up I thought was carrying a laser down the road that I must travel. Because you need a good laser when you're traveling down the road, right? But apparently it's Lord have mercy, Kyrie Eleison. Uh, you need Lord on, on the road you must travel to, but a laser's handy as well. So, but the point was words matter. And knowing what they mean matters. And so we always say, be the church. But what does that mean? Right? My first job at a seminary, took a job as the pastor of Christian education, which I didn't really know what that meant. I had one class in seminary on Christian education, but I needed a job. And so I took the job and I showed up and I kind of had an idea what I was supposed to do. But I sat down with the leadership and said, Okay, what is the mission here? What are we doing? What is the big picture? Where's our church going? What do you, what's the, what do you, the, the vision of what we're supposed to be doing? Because if I'm tasked with this little piece, I need to know how this little piece fits into the big piece. And so you tell me where we're going and I will, I will do my best to get on that road. And that was the language that that church at the time didn't speak. Kind of this kind of new idea of mission and vision. And they were like, this young seminarian with these new ideas. We just preached the Bible, you know? And what is this wizardry, mission, vision? And, and so... They, they kind of pushed back, but then they said, fine, here's our mission. And so they gave me a mission statement, and I kind of worked what I did through that. But when we came down here and started in 07, I, I said, I want to be clear on what we're doing, why we're doing it, right? And so we came up with a, a mission idea. It's kind of adapted a few times in the last 12 or 13 years, but it's pretty much the same, that we exist for God's glory to equip people to follow Jesus through community and the Bible, Really, equip people to follow Jesus, how through community in the Bible. Real simple, seminary professor said, should be passed the t-shirt test, gotta be short and pithy, boom, there it is. But then there's the bigger question. All right, that's great. We're equipping people to follow Jesus. But what does it mean to follow? I mean, how do you diagnose that? What does a follower look like? See, that's a bigger question. And so we kind of sat down again and looked at the New Testament, looked at the Old Testament, and it came up with what we now call our specs, S-P-E-C-S, these kind of five core values that we think the Bible teaches. This is what a follower does. This is what a follower looks like. It's not all-inclusive. It's not everything a follower does. It's not just some, like a plug and play. Well, I got these five things. I must be a follower, all right? It's not that, but what it is, is if you do none of them, you're not a follower, that's for sure. But the idea is, these things are, are, if you're linking arms with us, if you're pressing in to following Jesus, these things are gonna be evident. They're gonna be growing. Not gonna master them, but they are gonna be growing in your life. 
And so what we wanna do is just remind ourselves, if you've been here for a while, you've heard some of this before, if you're new, it's, it's important. If you're going to join CBC, if you're gonna link arms with us, this is what we're about. This is what we're shooting for. When we say we wanna equip you to follow Jesus, this is what we mean. We have five core values. And the idea is we wanna sit just for a few weeks and take, take one a week and see, see what Jesus says about these things. How does, how does he model these? Because not only is he savior and Lord, he is, but he also is the perfect example of what a follower would look like. And so we can say, Jesus did this, I wanna follow. It's not just I wanna, I wanna know what he knew, I wanna do what he did. Right, so, so this is not an apologetic for why we should pray or why we should this or why we should that. This is a how did he do it so that we can do it. We have a new member of uh, the Fowler family. Um, we have you know, four children, we have a cat, we have a satanic dog named Milton, uh, we have uh, you know, a snake, and now we have added, this is Maisie. I don't know what we were doing. This is one of those weak moments of mine. But this is, this is Maisie, all right? Melton needed a sister. Hopefully she will improve on his behavior. Um, and we are try, trying very hard to equip Maisie to follow Jesus and us. So we are teaching simple commands. Come, sit. We're, we're trying to teach her that there's this great place with grass and trees and that is the place that you do your business, not on the carpet. And it's not enough for Maisie to know that there's grass and trees and pine straw. We want her to do something about it, right? We want her to follow us in that. that that's what this is about. We want to not just know, yeah, Jesus prayed. Jesus was in community. Jesus engaged. Jesus had gifts. We want us to follow. We want to be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude ourselves. And so we're gonna look today at, at how Jesus modeled for us, really, how did he engage the scriptures? How did he, what role did they play? Two questions, really two questions for us to answer today, right? And this is gonna be quick and brief, and this is a lot of information uh, in a short period of time, so I'm gonna hit the high points, and you can go back and dig into some of these passages. We're gonna be a little all over the place, looking at different places. You can follow along on your Bible. If, you get, if you're a quick turner, you can follow on the screen or you know, use your phone app. But two questions I wanna ask. Number one, how did Jesus view the scriptures? That's the first one we'll get to in a second. And the second one is, how did Jesus use the scriptures? What, what role did they play in his life? First one is this, how did Jesus view the scriptures? And there's two ideas here. There's more than two, but two big ones. Number one, he viewed them as true. They were true. He, he believed that they were true. Let me just give you a couple places. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. That's a way of summarizing the entire Old Testament, right? The 39 books, because that was all that was written at the time. Don't think I came to abolish it. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. And then he says this, this is a huge statement, okay? For truly I say to you, and when Jesus says truly I say to you, literally amen, amen in the, in the Greek, he's saying pay attention to this. Don't miss this piece. I say to you until heaven and earth pass away. That's a pretty big statement, right? How big is heaven and earth, the universe? He says until the heavens and the earth, the universe, Jupiter, Saturn, you know, uh, all those, you know, Orion's belt, all those things, the Death Star, until all that passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it's fulfilled. 
He uses these grand big ideas, universe, heaven, something that seems so stable. He says, until that's gone, this will last. And he says, an iota and a dot. Here's what an iota and a dot is, because that's kind of not language that we use. An iota is this, a reference to the smallest Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's what we know call a yod. Right, here's what a yod looks like. It's a little apostrophe. It's the, the, the sound is yah, Yahweh. It begins with a yod. It's the smallest letter, just a little boop. That's it. He says, heaven and earth, yod, and then he says a dot. A dot is the word karea. It's a reference to a, basically just a little serif. You know what a serif is? For those of you who are uh, uh, font nerds, which is like three of you, if you like Comic Sans, you're not a font nerd, you're something else. But uh, when you have Arial, Arial font, you've seen that in your little Microsoft Word, it has no serifs, it's just lines. It's this very kind of bold-faced thing. Times New Roman has a little, you know, little curves, a little Roman at the end, right? That, those are seraphs. He says, every little seraph in the scripture is true. Here's what a seraph looks like. Here's what he would be referencing. Okay, these are two Hebrew letters. This is a, basically a B and a K, all right? The B on the left, the K on the right. Uh, the difference between these two letters is that little thing right there. That's, that's what he's talking about, a karea. It's the difference in the English language between an, a capital R and a capital P. What's the difference? That little line, boop. He said, this is the point. Heaven and earth, they're gonna be gone. Every little yod, every little, every little line, that's going to last. So how true did Jesus view the scriptures to be? Down to the littlest dotted I, down to the crossed T. That was his view of the scripture. So not only were they true, right? Secondly, uh, and again, I could go to another place. Luke 16 is another passage that I've gone to. Actually, this is one worth looking at. Luke 16, you have two men have died, a rich man and a man named Lazarus. Lazarus is in, is in heaven and, and uh, the rich man is being tormented apart from God in hell. And, and Abraham is there with Lazarus uh, and, and this man somehow is able to interact with Abraham and says, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus to my, my brother's. I have five brothers and I don't want them to come to this place of torment. Send Lazarus from the dead so he can warn them. And Abraham says, they have Moses, they have the prophets. Let them hear them. And he says, no, Abraham, if someone goes back from the dead, they'll repent, they'll believe. Send a miracle. And the statement that Jesus makes from the mouth of Abraham is, is significant. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced if someone rises from the dead. It's very interesting because you would think if someone comes back from the dead, yeah, I'm believing that. Jesus says, no, if they reject the word, it doesn't matter what experience they have, what miracle they see. You know why? Because every miracle can be explained away, right? They did it to Jesus. He comes back from the dead. And what do the Pharisees do? No, 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 no. He's not coming back from the dead. He, the, his disciples stole the body. You can explain away an experience, but what Jesus' point is, is the word is more sure than any experience you may have. It's true. This is why he prays for us. In John 17, he says, Father, sanctify them, set them apart in truth. Your word is truth, right? He believed them to be true. Secondly, he believed them to be authoritative, they have authority. They're to be obeyed. Mark chapter seven, a good example of this. One of the many instances when Jesus and the Pharisees are going at it and they're mad at Jesus because his disciples don't wash their hands before eating, which in the days of COVID is important. 
right? So wash your hands. But that's not the idea in Mark 7. The idea in Mark 7 is the disciples are not ceremonially washing. I mean, these guys would wash every time they eat a bowl of Fruit Loops, poof, wash their hands. Every time they get a turkey and, and Swiss sandwich, they wash their hands. It had nothing to do with cleanliness. It had everything to do with symbolism. And his disciples didn't do it. And the Pharisees get all mad and say, why don't they keep our traditions? And Jesus quotes Isaiah and says, well, these people, well written is it by Isaiah, you hypocrites. This people honors me at their lips, their heart's far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines of men, the commandments of men. And you leave, notice the language, the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And the commandment he's talking about there in that passage is the commandment to honor your father and your mother because they had a tradition where if they were supposed to take care of mom and dad when they got old, but because they didn't wanna spend their money on mom and dad, they would say, all my money is korban. It's devoted to God. I'm sorry, I can't help you, mom and dad. My money's for God. He says, yeah, you'll blow off the commandments for your little washing the hands. It's not even for me. But notice the language. It's a commandment of God. Verse 13, you make the word void by your, uh, the word of God void by your tradition. Commandment of God, word of God. It comes from God. It is sourced in God. It has authority. It is a command. It is his word. What did Jesus view the scriptures? Something to be obeyed. It's a command. It's a precept, right? It's authoritative. That's the idea. This is why you can read throughout the gospels. Jesus is challenged. He says, they come to him and say, what, what do you say about divorce, Jesus? Can a man divorce his wife? His response, have you not read? He appeals to the authority of scripture. His buddies are, are picking wheat on a Saturday and the Pharisees are all mad. What are they doing? He says, have you not read what David did? They talk about the resurrection. No, there's no resurrection. Blah, blah. He says, have you not read what it says? He constantly goes back to the truth and the authority of the scripture. It's truthful, it's authoritative, right? And, and if, if that's what Jesus believed and we are following Jesus and we're to help others follow Jesus, then here's the big question for us, $50,000 question. If it's true, if it's authoritative, then how do you respond to the word of God, right? Just because there's two options. You can either be evaluated by the word or you can evaluate the word, you can put yourself over it and be like, yeah, but that was 2,000 years ago. And the apostle Paul was living in a different time. He didn't really know well, all these things. We're so smart now. We're so much smarter. You know, we're so much wiser. And we know better. That's evaluating the word. I know it says this, but that may be true for you. But that's not really true for me because it's truth is what I think it is. That's evaluating the word. Or you can put yourself under and says, here's what God says. Everyone else says this, but here's what God says. I'm gonna go with what God says. Those are your two options. Those are your two options, right? And the follower says, okay, this is what God says, I'm gonna follow. Let me, let me show you a passage, a pretty, pretty strong passage, Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says this, just notice the first part of the verse. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. I underline three words here because I want you to think about these. There's a progression, has, Keeps, loves. The word has could be translated accepts, receives. Whoever accepts my word, whoever receives my word, that's the first thing, and then keeps him. That's obedience, that's following, that's listening. He is that loves me. See the progression? If I receive what God has said, 
and I keep what God has said, that proves that I love the God who said it, right? Significant, right? Because we have a lot of people in the church, church at whole, but even maybe in our church to say, man, I love you. If I asked you, raise your hand if you love Jesus. You know, everyone's hand's gonna go up because if you don't, then people are like, Satan, you know, next to me, right? Who's not gonna say, yeah, I love God, I love Jesus. But Jesus says, okay, that's great. That's what I desire. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's, that's the greatest commandment. But he says this, if you love me then, what are you gonna do? You're gonna accept, you're gonna obey. And if you don't accept, that means you reject. And if you don't obey, that means you disobey. Then that means you do not love, that means you hate. See, very clear how it works. And these are not my words, these are Jesus' words. And I think this is significant for us to think about because how many times this week, Bill Fowler knew what was right, knew I should respond in this way, knew I should be patient over here, knew I should not think in that way or act in that way, and I knew what was right, and I still chose this. And in that moment, I'm not loving God, right? A sin, I'm not loving God. And I think for a lot of us, we have to ask the question, do I really love God? Because we have a whole church in America that says, yeah, I love God, but they've never responded in any way, shape, or form to what Jesus has said. They just want to live their life, their morality, that is my job, my life, my marriage, my relationships, my whatever, my morality. And if that's you, you're like, yeah, I love God, but I never respond, then I would be very careful to say, yeah, you're, I'm a Christian because, because Jesus says you may not be. And James says, no, that's called a dead faith. It's not that we earn our salvation. It's not that we work our way to heaven. But if we are truly saved, there's a response. Not that we never fail, that we all have sinned and fall short. That's not the point. But if there's never been a heart, a never been a response to what God has said. I mean, Jesus says in John 10, my sheep, my sheep, those are mine. They hear my voice. I know them and they follow, right? We're trying to get Maisie, hear our voice. Ignore your devilish brother, Milton. He is the devil, Listen to us, right? Stop, don't growl every time someone walks by your water dish. Don't, don't bark at everything that is in the yard. Listen to us, follow us, because there's all these voices and the good shepherd is crying out, follow me. Come, all who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, right? He wants to lead you beside still waters, he wants to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death, his rod and his staff comforting you. He wants to lead you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's the heart of the good shepherd, right? It's, it's, it's who we are called to be, to follow and to help others follow. We need to know what helping others follow looks like because if we don't know what following looks like, we can't help others to follow. So we, we, need, we need to know. We put ourselves under the scripture. We follow right? So Jesus believed the scriptures to be true and he believed them to be authoritative. That's kind of a more of a, a little bit intellectual. Let's, let's get a little bit even more down in the dirt and a little bit more shoe leather practical here. What role did they play in his life? What roles did the scriptures play? And, and I got four things for you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be super transparent. These are, not, these are not novel. These are not new. Been in the church for any time, you know these things. But I think it's important to be reminded 
to be stirred up by Peter says, by way of reminder, because in the days, especially of COVID and everything else, it is super easy to be complacent and be lazy. So sometimes we need a little spiritual kick in the pants, right? So let me give you four ways in which Jesus used the scripture, how they, they, these were significant in his life. And again, you're going to be like, uh, I get that. Yes. Okay. I, I understand that, but I think these are significant. Here's the first one, probably the most obvious. How did Jesus use the scriptures? Number one, he knew them. I know you're like, whoa, I never thought of that, right? But here's, here's where we go sometimes. We think, oh, of course Jesus knew the Bible. He kind of inspired the Bible, right? Of course he knew. He's God. He's Messiah. That is true. But the miracle of the kenosis, of the emptying, of the incarnation of Jesus becoming man, is that he limited himself that he was like us. So when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, he's not like at three days old quoting Ezekiel to marry his mom because that would have freaked her out. The baby just quoted Ezekiel to us, Joseph. No, he was a baby. He needed to be fed. He needed to be changed. He limits himself so that he has to learn. The son of God has to learn to read, learn to write, He has to grow. He has to learn to walk. He has to go to synagogue like all the other little boys. He has to listen to the rabbi. He has to study for himself. And and that's why the scripture says he grows in wisdom, right? He, He limited himself to become like us and he studies the scriptures and he knows the scriptures. He memorizes the scriptures. Let me give you just one instance of kind of a fun passage that shows his knowledge of the scriptures. Luke chapter four, his ministry just starts and he's the preacher and the preacher goes home. And anytime the preacher goes home, he has to do two things, pray for every meal and preach on a Sunday. That's the two rules, right? When preacher comes home. So Jesus goes home to Nazareth, country boy comes home. He's making a name for himself. He's traveling preacher and they're like, Jesus, you gotta preach on Saturday. He's like, okay. So he shows up at the synagogue and they give him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now remember Old Testament, They don't have books, they have a scroll and there's no chapter divisions and there's no verses. You know, you go like, oh, Isaiah, yeah, I can find that. It's, you know, the table of contents. No, it's just a scroll. And Isaiah is a long scroll because it's a long book. But here's how well Jesus knows the, the, the Old Testament. They hand him the scroll. He unrolls this puppy and he keeps rolling. He's rolling because he goes all the way to it. For us, would be chapter 61. That's a long, he's like, they're like, what is he doing? And where's he going? At the end of the, he goes all the way and then boom, he stops. And he starts reading what we have with verse one. He says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to, the, to blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops right in the middle of the prophecy, by the way. The prophecy continues, but that portion of the prophecy refers to his first coming And then the second half of that prophecy in Isaiah actually refers to his second coming when he returns again. He stops, he closes, he rolls that scroll up. And then this is when when the rabbi would sit down and teach, right? He would read it standing and then he would sit down and teach. And And he preaches the shortest sermon in all the Bible. He says this, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Boom, sermon over. You're like, Fowler needs to preach more like that. I hear you. But then they respond like, this was the greatest sermon we've ever heard. They're, they're blown away. Who is this guy? He's, isn't this the son of Joseph? 
But not only does he know the words, he knows the meaning. He knows what they mean. This is why he says, I, I, I told you, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Here's what that means. You shouldn't even lust in your heart because he knows the scripture and he teaches them. I was gonna have a whole nother point. He teaches, but it's implicit and, and I don't have time to cover them all. But Jesus teaches the scripture. You should not commit adultery. That means don't lust. They come to him and say, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in all the Old Testament? He says, Deuteronomy, love God with all your heart. Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? He teaches. After the resurrection, there's two, two disciples are walking like, can you believe all this happened? Where's Jesus' body? What's going on? This is crazy. We thought he was Messiah. And Jesus is walking right with them. And then he stops them. He says, you hardened heart folks, you blind. And he opens the scriptures. He says, this, this is what the scriptures are talking about. This had to happen to Messiah. And he opens their minds to the truth of the scriptures. He teaches it because he knows it. He knows and understands the scripture. And again, it's, it's easy to say, oh, he's Messiah, he's Jesus. Of course, he's got to know it. You know what? The Bible is full of commands for you and I to know it too. Full. Paul says to Timothy and to us, do your best. What's that mean? Remember you tell your kids when they go off, just do your best, right? Do your best to present yourselves to who? To God. You're presenting yourself to God. It's what? A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He says, do your best to know what this book says. Do your best to understand what it says. You're presenting yourself to God. The psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It is a light to my path. If you wanna see where you're supposed to go, know this. Know this. Right? Peter says that we are to, we're commanded to be ready to give an account of the hope that is in us with gentleness and with reverence. Right? Joshua is told, this book of the law, it should not depart out of your mouth. You should meditate on it day and night, careful to do everything that's in it. Then you will have success, your way will be prosperous. I mean, it's throughout the entire Bible. You are to know what God has said and you can't know it if you don't read it, right? You need to have just, if you have questions, you're like, I don't, what does the Bible say about that? Go search it. You're like, what, do, what does the Bible say about baptism? Read the book of Acts, right? What does the Bible say about those who have never heard? Read the book of Acts. What does the Bible say about eternal security, about uh, spiritual gifts, Study, look, read, ask questions. You got, you got to be able to do this and know what God has said and move towards the issues. But not just so you know it, so you do it. It's not just so we get all, you know, we're so smart. We're a bunch of jerks, but we know the Bible. I can, I can, I can quote you the book of Ezekiel backwards and in Latin, but I don't, I hate my kids, right? I, it doesn't matter. When I, my, my first semester in seminary had uh, Prof, Prof Hendricks for, Really the best class seminary I had was Bible study methods. He was the greatest professor before he went to be with the Lord. Such a gifted man. And uh, he uh, took us to a passage I had never seen at that point. I was a pretty, nah, six years, seven years as a Christian at that point. I forget how many years exactly. But uh, he took us to the book of Ezra. And I'll be honest, I had never read the book of Ezra. And let's be honest, most of y'all don't even know that there is a book of Ezra. Okay, so let's, you don't judge me, right? But we took us to the book of Ezra and this, in chapter seven, this great little verse, it's worth, worth your while to look at. Ezra is a priest, time of Nehemiah. And it says this, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord 
And then what? To do it. And then what? To teach it. See, this is Old Testament discipleship. We would say he's a follower. He's following God and he's helping others to follow God. That's what he's doing, right? And it's not that this is just a bunch of information. It's not informational. It's supposed to be transformational. We don't just learn it so we can know it. We learn it so we can do it. This is why we try our best on a Sunday and we're not the best at it. There's a lot more than we're gifted, but we try to take the scriptures, explain them and then say, okay, this is what that means. This is what, this is what it looks like. Here's some practical ideas for you to think through. This is why we give you community groups and a lot of our community groups are reviewing what we talked about on Sunday, not because the sermon was so great, but so there can be repetition. We can think about these things and flush it out in community. This is why after the sermon, we don't want you to just run off and get to Barnes. It's still gonna be bad an hour later. No, it's actually pretty good. But there's no rush. We want you to sit in the kind of the text for a minute and to sing and to reflect on the word of God. You can get to good barbecue later. That's why we do that. That's why we call you, if you're a member here, to serve, to give, to engage. It's not because we're trying to fill your life up with a bunch of stuff. That's not our goal. Our goal is to call you to what the scripture says to do. And the scripture says if you're a believer and you're part of a local church, you serve and you give. And you engage and you put yourself under the scripture. So Jesus knew him, right? He knew him and he taught him, right? Next thing he did, he fought temptation and sin with the scriptures, which I think is hugely instructional for us. Because you would think he's God, so he would just show up and when Satan shows up, he's like, I'm Superman, boom. He just kind of defeat him. Like, what are you gonna do to me, Satan? When he is tempted by the enemy, who, by the way, Jesus created. If you think about that, the creator is being tempted by the creation. What does he do? Where does he appeal? He quotes the Bible. And not just any portion of the Bible, he quotes Deuteronomy. Now, if your victory over sin in your life was dependent on your knowledge of the book of Deuteronomy, how would you do? Again, you're like, Deuteronomy, what's that? Right? It's a second giving of the law, first, fifth book of the Pentateuch, right? fifth book of the Bible. But he quotes them. So Satan says, make this rock into a bread. Man should not live by bread alone, Deuteronomy. Do a duck dive off the temple. God will catch you. The Lord says, don't test him, Deuteronomy. Bow down and worship me. I'll give you all these kingdoms. You should worship the Lord God and him only, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. How does he fight sin? He fights sin with the only real weapon outside of prayer that people of God have. See, we fight a battle not of flesh and blood, but of rulers, of powers, of authorities. It is a spiritual battle, and you can't use a physical weapon and a spiritual battle. You can only use a spiritual weapon, and we have been given the sword of the spirit, which is what does Paul say? It's the word of God. So how do you fight the enemy? How do you fight sin? How do you fight temptation? The spiritual weapon, the word of God, right? And I think this is a great great application point for us here is, is scripture memory is important. It's, it's a lost art in our culture. We don't memorize anything anymore. You don't even know your kids' phone numbers, be honest. You don't even know your kids' names. It's like kid one, kid two, right? You hit the button, there he calls them. The only phone, I mean, I'll be honest, the only phone number I know is 8675309, all right? I got, I got it written on my wall, all right? That's the only number I know. We don't memorize anything. And we need to get, we need to get back to memorization of the word of God. It's, it, remember, again, up until 400 years ago, no one had copies of the Bible. How did they know it? They memorized it. They, they had large portions memorized. 
because I didn't have, I got my King James, I got my ESV, I got my New Living Translation, I got my NIV, I got my ESV. I didn't have all that stuff, right? And so it was important for them to internalize. Here's a great verse for you to start with. You want a uh, validation for the memorization of God's word? Psalm 119, which is all about God's word, by the way. How can, he asks the question, how can a young man, how can a young woman keep their way pure? He answers, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. And, and here's the last part. Your word I have treasured, I have stored up. I have, old King James, hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. What's the key to not sinning? It's hiding God's word in my heart. The idea is this. When you internalize the scripture, when the enemy comes, it's amazing. Y'all, it is amazing how when you spend time putting the scripture here and in here, how in the moment of, of trial and temptation, the spirit of God will bring forth the word of God so that you have something to fight. Right? So if you're struggling with lust and all of a sudden that, that, there's that chance to do that double take and you remember that Jesus said, uh, if I lust after that woman, I've committed adultery in my heart. Boom, I have something to fight with. I have something in my spiritual arsenal. I, I'm tempted to, to lash out at my spouse, lash out at my, my kids or, or go back because they just yell at me and, and blame me for something that wasn't my fault. And I have that Proverbs 15:1 that a soft answer turns away wrath right stored up in my soul so I, I can in that moment be gentle, or at least have a choice to do so, right? If I'm worried about job, COVID, exams, whatever, I can go to what Jesus says is, hey, tomorrow's got enough trouble. Don't worry. Or if what Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him, he cares for you. If you're fearful, here's a great verse, Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames shall not consume you. A great promise when you're feeling lonely. Right, down. Or maybe you struggle with assurance of salvation, your eternal security. Am I saved? I don't know. I prayed the prayer a thousand times, just in case. Right? I've got to put my faith in, in Christ. And Jesus would say this Hey, I give my disciples eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I got them. I got them. How secure are you? You got Jesus holding you in his hand. But just in case you're a little worried, he says, My Father, who has given to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. How secure are you? Jesus has got you. The Father got you. Oh, and by the way, Ephesians 1, the Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. That's like a triple, triple security. No one's breaking that. But it's important when, when, you're, when the enemy has doubts and tests you in that way. You'll be like, no, this is what Scripture says. Boom, I am in Christ and I am a new creation. Right? So find that area that you're struggling with. Gentleness, envy, whatever, and start memorizing Passages, and I know it's hard, it's difficult for some of us, I get it. So, you know, repetition, I had an old buddy who was a NAV, a, a leader in NAVs when I was in seminary. And uh, they're, they're great with scripture memory typically and a big piece of their ministry. And he used to say, hey, write it three times, read it three times, say it three times, and, it's, and then repeat. So all repetition. Think about this, if our church, all our members, if we memorize just one verse a week, just one, right? That's 52 in a year. In three years, that's 156, right? I got my multiplication good. I went to public school, right? 156 verses in three years. That is more than, than several New Testament books. You realize that? You would have more than a book of the Bible memorized in just three years. And start easy. Jesus wept, boom, you got one down right now. 51 to go for this year. Okay, you got that one. 
Seriously, just one a week. Put a car on your visor. Put, we've got so many resources. Here, here's a challenge for some of you. We're in, what, fourth week two, so we got four more weeks. In six, five weeks, we're starting the book of 1 John. Five chapters. You read it in one sitting, take you 15, 20 minutes. You read the book of 1 John every day for a month. Every day for a month. You know what's gonna happen in a month? You're gonna actually start, as you're reading it, you're gonna actually start quoting it before you're reading it because you're gonna be familiar with it and you're gonna start learning it and you're not even gonna realize, oh wait, repetition. You're gonna know, if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just, forgive me, right? He's propitiation, not for me, the whole world. I mean, it's just gonna happen because you're repeating and you're renewing your mind with scripture. So it's a challenge for us, it's encouraged. But Jesus, he fought sin. If you wanna have victory over sin, start memorizing the scriptures. Right, next thing, real quick. He discerned truth from error. The, the most effective lie is the lie that is very close to the truth. It's just a little bit off. I mean, if it's a blatant lie, it's easy to spot. Atlanta Falcons, good football team. Blatant lie, easy, right? But if it's, if it's this close to the truth, it's, it, you gotta be a little bit more wise. The more you know the truth, the easier it is to spot the lie. So when Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you jump off this temple, what does he do? He quotes the Psalms. He quotes the Bible to Jesus. and says, that God says his angels will catch you. But Jesus sees through it. He knows that's what it says, but that's not what it means. He knows the truth. So he says, do not test the Lord your God, is written. All right. But the more, the more you renew your mind, this is what Romans 2 says, common verse, we come to it a lot. Don't be conformed to this world, be transformed out by the renewing of your mind. What happens then? That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. What is good? What is true? What is not true? What is good? What is not good? What is acceptable and perfect? It comes when you renew your mind, knowing the truth. A couple of weeks ago, when we, before we got all mazy, my wife was Googling. We're looking at adoption agencies for dogs and rescues and all these things. We always try to rescue when we, we, when we get them. And so, but she found these two dogs on Craigslist that were really interesting. There was these two huskies and my youngest was like, I want a husky. So, you know, he just read all like uh, Call of the Wild. I'm like, it's not the same, but we'll look at a husky, right? So it's not Buck, okay? But so we're looking at these two and it was, it was, it was, it seems so great. I mean, this military family moved away, went to an apartment complex, couldn't, couldn't keep the dogs anymore. They, they were free dogs, all shots, well taken care of, house broken, everything. It's like, it's a dream come true. We just take one of them, right? So we email them, they're emailing back. They're so sweet, but it started to get a little, ske- just a little bit like something's not passing the smell test here. Now I was, you know, I was all in. I'm like, yeah, and they, they had moved to North Dakota, all right? And dogs are free and they wanted us to send pictures and they wanted us to, you know, because they really love the dogs. You just can't keep them. Heartbreaking story. And I'm like, let's just, yeah, let's just adopt them. Let's drive to North Dakota. You know, we'll go get them. But it, my wife was the smart one. She's like, something doesn't smell right. It sounds like a scam. And sure enough, it was like, oh, just send us money to ship the dog and then we'll ship you the dog. I'm like, okay, we'll send you the money. It's so cute. It's Buck from Call of the Wild, right? But it's it It's a scam. Right? I Googled it. It's a common scam. Right? Because, I mean, who moves to North Dakota? Nobody moves to North Dakota. I should have known something right off the bat. There's like three people there. I mean, really. But my wife recognized this doesn't seem right. There's something. She do a little research. Yep, sure enough, it's not true. 
See, that's what happens when you know the truth. You can spot truth. You can spot error. When the news guy says this, when the professor says this, when your friends are like, yes, this, you can say, no, that's not true. And here's why. So it's not only you following, but it's helping others to follow. When your kids, you're leading your kids and like, okay, this is what you're going to hear when you go to school. This is what we're going to tell you. They're going to tell you this. You came from a monkey. You're all these things. This is not true. This is what truth is. This is what error is. Right? It's, a, it's an important piece of why God has given us his word of putting ourselves under the word. Jesus discerns truth and error. Here's the last thing. He uses it for soul food, as I call it. Soul food. To feed his soul. Do you need a hamburger once in a while? Absolutely. Do you need a good steak? Absolutely. Does your soul need to be fed? Absolutely. So when Jesus is tempted by Satan, the first temptation he's been in the wilderness, 40 days he is hungry. And Satan comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, and, and the idea there is it's a first class condition in the original language, which means it's an assumption to be true. If you're the son of God, and we know you are the son of God, then, then command these rocks to become bread. I mean, you're God, you can do this, do this. Not a big deal. Was it sin for Jesus to make bread? No, he made bread at other places. That was not the temptation. It was very subtle. The temptation was for Jesus to stop depending on his father to sustain him and to branch out on his own, to be independent of his dad, to say, I don't trust you anymore because you're not meeting my need, so I need to meet my own need. That was the temptation. But Jesus' response, again, from Deuteronomy is, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As he says later, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. I'm sustained by God. I'm sustained by his word, by his truth, by his leading, by his direction. It's soul food, right? And here's the application for us. I think, this is for me, is that we as a people need to learn how to feed ourselves from the scriptures. This, what we do here, is it important? It is. Is it commanded in the New New Testament? It is. Is it important for you to connect and serve and and all these things? Absolutely. But this is just supplemental. You need to be a self-feeder. You need to learn to read the Bible for yourself. And if you're like, I don't know how to do it, we can give you a thousand resources. You can Google a thousand resources. I mean, just read. Don't start in Ezekiel. Maybe start in 1 John or Mark or someplace more simplistic. But, But just ask the question, what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about me? What do I need to do? I, you just start with those three questions, you're gonna, you're gonna get a lot out of the text, right? But we need to be self-feeders of the word of God. It's important because this is supplemental. If you will read throughout the week, this will be more catalytic in your life. And then when you go to group and you can talk about what God's doing in your life, it'll be, it'll be life-changing, right? Uh, last summer when we had that big, remember we had that big drought and our yard starting to look bad, so I did what I hate doing, turn the sprinklers on because I don't want a high water bill, but I had to do it because the grass was dying. And I have this area out in the front of my yard. It gets full sun. It's the largest area. And I got a new sprinkler head and I put it on there and sprinklers are going. Everything looks great. It starts turning green again except for this one little spot by the edge because the sprinkler is like five feet short of the curve. And what happened was because it didn't get any water, that whole area died. I mean, it was like the Sahara Desert and then right next door, it was like Wrigley Field. It was like grass, sand. Same sun, same soil, same location in my yard. The only difference is this side got fed incrementally and this side didn't. And at the end, I could, at the end of the summer, I could have brought in a fire truck at 50,000 gallons of water and said, oh, I'll catch it up. Would have done a thing. Because it's not about that, it's about the slow, incremental feeding 
over time. It's taken me a year and a half. I had to go buy those little $8, you know, sprinkler things that you put with the hose that you, we used to run through in the 80s. That was our pool in the 80s is run through the sprinkler. Woo! You know, I had to get one of those just to get some green in there now. So it's a little sporadic, but it's getting some. It's taken that long. Here's the point. Your soul needs to be fed. And it's not the big fire hose of once a week for 40 minutes. It's slow, incremental feedings of your soul. That if you will do that for one year and five years, in 10 years, you will be like the psalmist said, a tree that is planted by streams of water. You will bring forth fruit in your season. Your leaf will not wither and whatever you do, you will prosper. That's the idea, right? And it starts with a choice that you have to make. And I know we're like, oh, I'm so busy. So just cut out the Instagram filters and the Facebook updates for a little bit and feast your soul on the word of God. Because you have a God, you have a savior who not only loves you and desires fellowship with you, he says, I stand at the door and I knock. I'm knocking. If any man or woman hears my voice and they open the door, I will come in with him, I will dine with them and he with me. The God of the universe is knocking and wants to delight in you and wants to fill your soul. And I think some of us here are probably, if we're honest, we're that that dead grass and you need to start slowly feeding again and you'll start to see a little grass in your soul coming up, right, over time. Jesus fought sin, he knew them, he discerned truth from error, he fed his soul and he taught. Let me close with this verse. Famous verse, I've gone over, so I'm I'm gonna end. But all scripture, Paul says, is inspired by God. Literally, that means it's sources in God. That means it's true if it's from God, it's authoritative if it's from God. And it's profitable, it's beneficial, is the idea. It helps you, it helps you teach, that's what disciples do. It's proof and correction. That's, that's, hey, you're going this way. We need to go this way. You need to turn. For training in righteousness, this is, this is victory over sin. This is the resistance of temptation. And here's why. That you can be adequate. That you can, can be complete. That you're equipped for life. This is, this is the language we use. Equipping people to follow Jesus. He wants you to have victory over sin. He wants to feed your soul. He wants your joy to be complete. He wants you uh, to, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he's given us his word. And so the follower follows Jesus and helps others follow Jesus by putting yourself under the word, by pointing people back to the word, by letting the word evaluate me, not me evaluate the word. That's where it starts, right? That's where it starts. So let me pray. And then uh, we'll sing one song and then we'll go. Father, I pray that you would sanctify your people in truth. Your word is truth. You said it, we believe it. For those who have been stale and dry, I just pray that the water of life would be poured over their souls and they would just have another, just a spark of interest back towards you that we would draw near to you, that you would draw near to us. Thank you that Christ models for us what it means to respond to the gospels, to the word, that we would let the word of Christ richly dwell in us. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys can stand as we sing.